Amen. Well, if you are on our um, community text line or our leadership text line, your phone has probably also been blowing up with pictures of Ireland. Andrew and is, has been in Ireland with his parents, and we have some folks going tomorrow to make a pilgrimage for the week. They're not going for morning of the queen. They're hopefully not going to be too affected by that. But um, in Andrew's absence, we are kicking off a really cool series on the Bible and the whole picture of the Bible. Um, but before we do that, we want to prove to you this morning why you can believe the Bible, why you can trust the Bible. And so this is my friend Devin, who is a self-professed nerd. Hello. Hello. But he has promised he's not going full nerd on us this morning because there's people like me who will be like, what in the world? My, I cannot look stuff up in the dictionary fast enough to follow you. Yeah. Um, but my nerdy friend Devin is going to share with us this morning. And so, Lord, would you bless Devin as he shares? We thank you, Lord, for your word that is true and accurate and unchanging. And we thank you that, for his passion for it. And ask God that that would be imparted to us as he shares this morning. In your name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Good to see you guys. How's everyone doing? Good. Hey, that was a lively response. All right. I like it. So, um, I have the privilege of getting to uh, uh, sort of inaugurate this new series we're doing on understanding the Bible. And, um, you know, as Amy had mentioned, initially, today's message was going to be entirely on that fourth word, the transmission of the Bible. How did we get the Bible that we have today? And, you know, is the Bible that we're reading today faithful to the original that was written then? Um, but as I was going through it, you know, it's kind of an academic and, and technical story. I was like, oh, man, they are all going to fall asleep. So... Um, I decided to make that part two of this message and have part one be a little bit broader um, in terms of looking at, you know, what, what's the purpose of the Bible and, and what was its origin and, and why do Christians even give this book any authority in their life? I mean, it's, it's kind of odd when you think about it, right? Because this book here, um, you know, the, the first three, three quarters of it were written between 3,000 to 2,000 years ago, uh, and the, the last quarter of it was written 2,000 years ago. And, you know, for, for people that aren't Christians, they might think it's kind of odd. Why would you let this ancient book, you know, have any bearing in your life? Why would you believe what this has to say? Um, and my hope today is to, to, to go some distance towards answering that question. So, um, as I noted, I've uh, broken this up into two parts, um, uh, sort of with four questions between them. So part one, what is the Bible? Where did it come from? Why should it be an authority in our lives? And then part two is going to be looking at that more technical question of, you know, hey, if this thing was written 2,000 years ago, how do we know that it hasn't been changed or edited, you know, down through the centuries? So, 
Let's, uh, before going any further, I do want to give credit where credit is due. Um, this message is heavily influenced by the work of two scholars that I particularly love. One is uh, Tim Mackey. He's one of the co-founders of the Bible Project. If you guys have watched those Bible Project videos, um, really part one of this message heavily draws on work that he's put together. And then part two, looking at the transmission of the text, is really leaning on the work of Daniel Wallace. He's a um, uh, PhD at Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, one of the foremost textual critics in the world today, and founded uh, the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. Um, anyway, if you really want to go full nerd, talk to me afterwards and I can give you some resources. Okay, I, this picture is pretty cool. So um, this picture is a picture of of these two hands. Um, it's drawn by a man named M.C. Escher in 1948, entitled Drawing Hands. And M.C. Escher, if you're familiar with his work, he really loved to play with visual paradoxes. And so um, one of his most famous works is called The Infinite Staircase. It's that picture you may have seen where it looks like the staircases are going up and down at the same time, and maybe I should have included it. But anyway, this is another one of his, his works. And um, uh, this picture, I think, encapsulates something profound about the biblical text and also pushes back on an attitude that I think is pretty common uh, within the American evangelical church. And that is, how do we think about this book. You know, for, for Christians, right, we believe that this is the um, inspired, divine word of God. And, um, and sometimes I think that we can get in our minds just this view that, you know, uh, uh, the authors must have fallen into some trance and they were just writing out what they were hearing directly from God and it's like golden tablets just falling from heaven. And so it's a purely divine work, um, you know, and then skeptics uh, will will do their historical research and go, no, 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 your book has a rich and complex history and, you know, we can trace that history back through time. This isn't a divine work, it's a human work. And um, the, the orthodox statement of faith about the Bible through the centuries has been it's both, right? The Word of God is a divine work, but it is a thoroughly human work as well. And, you know, isn't that appropriate, right? When we think about Jesus, the living Word of God, He is fully divine, but fully human. And so in the same way, the written Word of God is the inspired divine Word, but it is very human. And um, uh, we should not be scandalized by its human history and by um, learning how this came to be. In fact, it, it shows the beauty of God because God delights to work through us, these messy humans, right? When you think about your own life and you see God's hand working through your life, you can say, I see how the divine work of God has, has been moving forward. And yet, 
you know how human your life is, right? And, and how messy and complex it can be. And so God did the same thing in terms of bringing his word together uh, with us. So I say all of that because I'm going to go into some of those human elements of the word. And, and that is something beautiful. That is not something for us to be afraid of. And uh, this picture, I think, is just so cool to illustrate that, that, you know, as Christians, right, we want to say it's either divine or human. And God says, no, it's, it's both. It's these two hands that are coming together. Okay. Oh, darn, I gave away the answer. Okay, hopefully you didn't see that. Um, pop quiz. Where in the Bible is the first place that the Bible speaks about itself? in the sense of being written. If you start on page one and you begin reading, what's the first place that you see the Bible talk about itself being written? Anybody know? It's a good, you know, it's a fun fact. Yes, it is in the Old Testament. I'll take it. Um, so here's another irony, right? The last time I spoke, um, I did the Lord is my banner, which was from Exodus 17. Guess where the first place the Bible talks about itself being written is? Exodus 17. I didn't even realize that at the time. And then I was like, oh, dude, that is so cool. So... Exodus 17, um, it is in the story of the Amalekites when, uh, when the people of Israel um, have been going through the wilderness and they're basically these refugees that are running away from Egypt and uh, the Amalekites um, attack them and, you know, Moses goes up on the mountain, he holds up his hands and as long as his hands are raised, the people of Israel are winning in the battle against the Amalekites and and after the battle happens, this is what we read. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it. And Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. So the very first place that the Bible talks about itself being written, it gives this idea that, that it was for the people to remember God's saving act in history. Now, was this the first time that God did a miraculous saving work for his people? No. Where, where, what was the first big miraculous saving work that God did? No, I wouldn't say as a saving work as much. I mean, kind of, right? That was sort of a quasi-destructive work too, though. But, <laughs> but, um, but, but the Exodus story, the, the, that's true, yes. The Exodus story was, is kind of like the big flashpoint of the Old Testament where, you know, um, uh, God just delivers all of his people from this oppressive situation in Egypt. And after that happened, um, God didn't actually say to write that down. What, the way that God chose to have his people remember this event of his deliverance was through a ritual meal. 
It was the Passover meal that, that when the people of Israel would, would um, sacrifice this lamb and they'd put the, you know, the blood over the doorposts, well, moving forward from that, you know, every year they would reenact sacrificing the lamb and there was this whole process to be done and it was this remembrance of what God had done to deliver them. So, the first time God miraculously saves his people, he gives them a ritual meal that they would remember his work in history. The second time God saves them, he says, okay, write this down. Why? So that you can remember my saving work in history. So, what does that tell us? Well, the first reason why the Bible was written is to retell the story of God's action in history to save his people. It's to retell the story of God's action in history to save his people. You know what it's not? It's not a rule book, right? It's not like, hey, here's all of your instructions. Here's everything that you need to be doing in order to be pleasing to me. No, the very first purpose of the Bible is to... Is, is for us to see and to remember how much he loves us and what he's done to save us and to save his people. Okay, now, anybody know where the second place is that the Bible talks about itself uh, being written? Anyone want to take a guess? Exodus would still be the correct answer. Um, Exodus 24. So this is after the Israelites have now reached Mount Sinai. They've gotten the uh, Ten Commandments. And actually, if you read through from Exodus 20 through 24, it was 43 commandments by that time. But he, you know, eased them in with the first 10. And then by the end of Deuteronomy, it's up to 613 commandments, you know. So it was a, it was a little bit of a process. But, um, uh, you know, Exodus 24, God gives his um, uh, word to his people. And this is how it reads. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. That's the second place in the Bible where the Bible talks about itself being written. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. They sent, then he sent the young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. I mean, you can kind of roll your eyes at that one if you know how the story goes. Um, Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, it's kind of gross, uh, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. All right, so what's going on here? Well, this is the second time that the Bible talks about itself being written. And, and the context of this is that the Lord has just invited his people to come into a covenant relationship with him. 
And that's what Moses is writing down. Moses isn't writing down all of these laws so that the people would come into a covenant relationship with him. It was rather that God had invited the people into relationship with him first, and then these laws are merely the terms of that covenant. But what's going on here is that the Lord is inviting his people into a relationship with him. And what does that what does that relationship then look like and how does it come about? Well, these uh, young bulls are slain and then this blood is sprinkled on the people and that inaugurates, that's the, the initiatory moment of these people coming into this covenant relationship with God. So, second purpose of why the Bible was written. To invite people into a covenant relationship with God and it includes the terms of that covenant. Now, what does a covenant relationship mean? I mean, that's not language, you know, that most of us are generally, you know, talking about uh, too often, um, you know, on, yeah, just period. Um, but but the, easiest, the easiest analogy is marriage. So a lot of us are familiar with what marriage entails. When you marry your spouse, you are, you are coming into a unique relationship with your spouse where you're saying, I'm going to be for you, and you know, I'm holy yours, your holy mine, and, and there is a bond that is created there, right? And then, you know, what, what are the terms of that covenant? Well, it's things like, I'm going to forsake all others, and I'll be with you for richer, for poorer, for better or worse, you know, till death do us part. So the, the, the relationship of the marriage is the key thing, but then there's, there's these terms of what it means to be married, right? Like if you get married, and then you go out and have a bunch of one-night stands with people, you're not really like, you know, honoring or abiding with the terms of that covenant relationship that you made. So it's not that, that you have to be faithful in order to be married. It's just the reverse. It's that you are already married. You're in that covenant relationship. And then your faithfulness comes out of that. And, and the Bible's instruction to us works the same way. So, oh, okay, where did the Bible come from then? Well, the, the whole Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, um, emerges from the history of God's working with his people. So the Old Testament was written between 1400 to 400 years BC. Moses is the first author. He either wrote it in 1400 or 1200. There's a debate about that. Take your pick, um, you know. And then the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi, uh, which was uh, written in about 400 BC. Then the New Testament was uh, written between 50 to 70 AD and 90 AD. And, and both of, you know, all of these books then, what's going on is God's working with his people and his people are writing down what God's actions are through history and what God has been saying to them through history. But it's, it's you know, their words, right? Moses is a human and he's writing it down. And, and it didn't say that Moses fell into some trance, right? It was just Moses wrote down God's saving work in history. So the Bible's not golden tablets falling from heaven. It's deeply human work. It's not either divine or human. It is both. All right. 
Now, Jesus, Jesus in the Bible, I love Jesus. If anybody knows me, I can't ever do a message without, you know, trying to put Jesus right at the center of that thing. So, Jesus really cares about the Bible. I mean, when you read the Gospels, Jesus is quoting from it. He's rebuking people with it. He's fighting Satan with it. He's making theological, you know, conclusions from it. For, for Jesus, it seemed like he had the thing memorized. I mean, he really cared about the Bible and viewed it as God's word, as the divine word of God, okay? And, uh, and in our culture today, you know, especially like in the West, in America, there's a lot of things that Jesus said that, that you know, are quite popular among even non-Christians. Things like, you know, love one another and be compassionate and be kind and, um, you know, but then a lot of times the culture goes, yeah, but let's not talk about what he had to say about sex or, or or money, or about the Bible itself, or about judgment. Like, we don't really like that part. Just, just give us the kind, compassionate grandpa Jesus, and, um, and you know, we're just not going to read those other parts. But you can't divide Jesus up like that. That's not the real Jesus. That's, that's a Jesus remix in your own image. And um, you're trying to borrow from his authority to just do what you want to do. So, you know, I'm interested in the real Jesus. What did the real Jesus have to say? Um, well, he proclaimed that the kingdom of God had come with his arrival. And, uh, and I want to look at two scenes then from his life, and, um, and you'll actually see how these two scenes connect with the two scenes from Exodus. So, the first one I want to go to, here's another pop quiz um, for anyone that was here when I spoke on the island, is uh, when Jesus inaugurates the Last Supper. Anybody remember the number that you were supposed to remember? Where is the Last Supper? Oh, come on. You guys are supposed to get this one. Matthew 26, 26. I'll just say it again. Matthew 26, 26. If you ever want to remember where the Last Supper is, that's where it is. So, let's go to Matthew 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. Where have we heard that before? That's a direct quote from Exodus 24, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. So, Jesus didn't write anything down. Okay, Jesus didn't actually write any of the books of the Bible. What did Jesus do to have his disciples remember the saving work of God, this new movement that God was going to do to save his people? He gave them a ritual meal. Just like how in Passover, the first way that the Israelites were told to remember what God had done was through a ritual meal. And Jesus does the exact same thing. And, um, uh, but, but, Obviously, there is a New Testament, you know? So, well, hey, if Jesus didn't write anything down, why do we think that the New Testament has any authority? Well, let's look at what Matthew 28 has to say. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority 
in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So, who has all authority? Jesus, yes, we got that one. Good job, guys. All right. You know, so where is our ultimate allegiance? Yes, Jesus. Okay. So is our allegiance to a book? No, our allegiance is to Jesus. Our allegiance is to Jesus. But, but, obviously we do believe that this book has authority in our life. Why does this book have authority? Because Jesus said the Bible is the word of God. Jesus affirmed that God's speech is in the Bible and that God speaks through the Bible. And Jesus told his disciples to write down everything that he was telling them. Just like how God told Moses to write down everything that he had told them. So Jesus inaugurates this new covenant in his blood. He gives us an invitation and he says, you are welcome to come into relationship with God. And by the way, here's what that looks like. Here's what the terms of that are going to be. My disciples will teach you everything that I have shared so that you will be able to live in this new covenant. But what this means, guys, is that the Bible is two things. It's a story that tells us of what God has done to save us, and it's an invitation for us to come into relationship with him. You know what that, why that's such great news? Thank you, Mike. I love you. You know why that's such great news? Because we don't have to be afraid of this book, okay? I can't tell you, like, there have been times in my life earlier in my faith where, like, if I was just messing up or acting the fool, like, I didn't even want to read the Bible. I just felt like, oh, I'm going to feel bad. It's going to make me feel bad. I'm going to read it. I'm going to just see how much I'm failing. It's going to tell me I'm supposed to be doing all these things I'm not doing. You know what? I'm just going to go this way. I'm not even going to read that book right now. And, and sometimes we then get afraid of this. We avoid this. But this is good news. This is not here to condemn us. This is not something to be afraid of. This is a love letter from God where he says, I have acted in history to save you. And I want you in relationship with me. I'm inviting you into relationship with me. This book is a, is a place, when you read this, what you're doing, is you're making space for God to show you how much he loves you. And the reason why we give this book authority in our life is because it contains the teachings of Jesus. And Jesus is the one that has all authority in our life. Jesus is the living word of God. And his authority is expressed to us in the written word of God. I think that's my next slide, actually. Um, when we say the Bible is authoritative... What we mean is that Jesus has authority over me. And that authority is expressed to us in the scriptures, right? So the reason why the Bible has authority is because Jesus has authority. And Jesus is the one who died for you, who loves you, who welcomes you into relationship with him. That means the Bible is a book 
that shows you how much God loves you and welcomes you and invites you into relationship with him. This book is awesome. Read it (laughs) every day, please. Okay. Um, Part two. All right, this is where I put you to sleep. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'll try. I'm trying to try not to. I'm going to try not to. Let me, I'll start with a joke, okay? You know, to, to, you know, like Mary Poppins said, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down, you know? All right. So, Assuming that I can deliver it. I'm not like a stand-up comic, but I'll do my best. All right. So, um, there's a Catholic monk in the late medieval period, okay? And, um, uh, you know, he had been trained in in a university, and he was assigned to uh, this old monastery to go become a part of this monastery's life. And and this particular monastery had a lot of old manuscripts, and, and one of their main jobs was to be copying all of the biblical manuscripts so that the Bible could faithfully be passed down from century through century through century. So the monk arrives at the monastery, and he, you know, goes to the, uh, the head monk and says, hey, you know, I've been trained to, you know, copy manuscripts. I, you know, I love the Lord. I, I really want to get started. And the head monk says, okay, no, no problem. Here, we'll, we'll start you with some of these. These are some of our newer manuscripts. So if you mess it up, you know, it's not going to be the end of the world. We can fix it. You know, if you were to lose a manuscript, God forbid, we, we still have, you know, ones that are older than that. So we'll start you there. The monk goes, okay, great, great. So, you know, he, he goes into this room and, and he's copying manuscripts and, and in pretty short order, he comes out and he tells the father, you know, hey, I finished. And the head monk's like, wow, you did that really quickly. Okay, well, um, here we've got some older manuscripts. Let's, uh, let's have you go and, and, and uh, copy some of those and see how you do. So the, the monk goes, and, and it's a little bit longer this time, but, but he copies them all faithfully, and he brings them back, and the, the you know, head guy checks his work good job, and says, you know what, you're, you're maybe the best among us, um, you know, and, and the monk goes, yes, please, I want to see the oldest manuscripts you have here, the, the very oldest ones, and the monk goes, oh, I don't, I don't know, I mean, no one's even been in that room for centuries, it smells bad, I mean, but, but okay, I'll, I'll take you down there, he goes, all right, so they're, they're walking down all these stairs into the inner part of the monastery, and he goes, all right, here, here it is, and, and so the, the new monk, you know, goes in there. And, um, and he's in there for hours and hours and hours. And it's a much, much longer time than, than in any of the others. And so finally, the other monks, they get worried about him and, and they go to check on him. And, and as they're approaching the door, they just hear this sobbing coming from the room. And they, they open the door and the monk goes, they dropped an R. The word was supposed to be celebrate. That's a good one. Cool. I was afraid you guys wouldn't get it, but you did. All right. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, so obviously, faithfully transmitting the text is important. Okay, because you know you don't want to be in that situation. So. 2003, Dan Brown writes this New York Times bestseller called The Da Vinci Code. Um, I read it when it first came out. Actually, it was a very enjoyable book. um, The movies weren't as good. But um, uh, in the book, uh, Dan Brown has uh, in the mouth of one of his characters this quote from the professor. 
The Bible has evolved through countless translations, additions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the Bible. And then um, in 2015, a journalist by the name of Kurt Eichenwald um, uh, wrote uh, this article, the, the Bible so misunderstood it's a sin. And in the article, he says this, no television preacher has ever read the Bible. Neither has any evangelical politician. Neither has the Pope. Neither have I, and neither have you. At best, we've all read as a bad translation. A translation of translations of translations of hand-copied copies of copies of copies of copies. And on and on, hundreds of times. And uh, in 2003... Uh, New Testament uh, scholar and uh, textual critic, uh, Professor Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman is actually a very capable scholar. Um, in his, uh, again, best-selling book in 2005, misquoting Jesus, had this to say, not only do we not have the originals, we don't even have the first copies of the originals. We don't even have copies of the copies of the originals or copies of the copies of the copies of the originals. So, there is this claim that has been put out in our culture, especially in the last 20 years, that has said, look, you know, your Bible is this beautiful invitation, you love letter, you know, Devin, but, but, you know, the Bible that we have now isn't even what was written then. It's been changed through the years. So you can't give this any authority in your life. You can't believe this thing. And, uh, and here's kind of what that, that claim would look like if you encounter this, you know, in the culture. And, and you probably would. I mean, if you watch the History Channel every Christmas or Easter, it seems like the History Channel just tries to blow up the Bible right before Christmas and Easter every year. Um, so, they, you know, this, these are the claims, okay? One, we do not have original copies of the biblical manuscripts. That's true. Two, Scribes regularly make errors and at times make intentional additions or omissions when copying manuscripts. That's also true. Three, given the amount of time that has passed, it's inevitable that mistakes and changes have made their way into the text from the time of the authors until now. That's also true. Four, therefore, we can't have confidence our Bible today reflects the original text. That's not true. And I'll explain why. So, to do this, you have to understand this discipline. It's an academic discipline called textual criticism. And, um, you know, these challenges of how do you faithfully copy a text, you know, and have it still read the same 2,000 years later, you know, than it was today. How do you pull that off? That's not a unique challenge to the Bible. Every ancient text is faced with that exact same challenge. So here's what textual criticism as a discipline is. The study of manuscripts or printings to determine the original or most authoritative form of a text, especially of a piece of literature. So the goal of textual criticism is to look at all these manuscripts and then try to determine what was the original wording or what is the most authoritative wording. That's what that particular field of study is out to do, okay? Now, when we think about the New Testament, for example, and I, I have to leave the Old Testament out for time's sake, otherwise you guys would really be falling asleep, but let's just stick with the new for right now. 
we've got to look at five questions here. And this is where things get a little technical, so hopefully you find this interesting. Lord, in Jesus' name. Um, what is a textual variant? You guys need to know what that is. How many textual variants are there? What kinds of textual variants are there? What theological beliefs depend on textually subject passages? Um, and has the essence of the Christian faith been corrupted by the scribes? So let's look at the first of those. What is a textual variant? Well, a textual variant is just a, a place between two manuscripts where they differ in what they say. That's all that it is. If you have one manuscript that says, Mary loves John, and you have another manuscript that says, Mary loves John a lot, that would be a textual variant between the two manuscripts, because one is saying something a little different from what the other one is. Now, the next question would be, how many variants are there in the New Testament? Well, the most detailed study up to date, this is as of about 2019 or so, with a clear method and open data, concludes there are probably about 500,000 non-spelling differences among our Greek New Testament manuscripts. Now, what's pretty remarkable about that is there's 500,000 variants that we have, but there's only 138,000 words in the New Testament. So there's a lot of variance when we look through our manuscripts. And then the question would be, well, should that be troubling for us? Well, you got to think about this. The reason why there is such a high number of variance is actually because we have an extremely large number of manuscripts with which to compare. For example, if we only had one Greek manuscript of the New Testament, there would be zero variants, right? We'd be like, yes, we've only got one. But, you know, I mean, if that one had any errors, we wouldn't know. I mean, we'd have no way of being able to verify that. And if you have five manuscripts, you're going to have more variants than the one. And if you have 50, you're going to have more variants than the five. So the more manuscripts you have, the more variants you're going to get. And right now, to date, we've discovered about 5,500 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. That's just in Greek. There's over 10,000 Latin manuscripts. There's another five to 10,000 manuscripts that are in um, Coptic and Syriac and Armenian and a whole host of other languages. But just in the Greek, we've got 5,500, okay? But here's the really cool thing. This large amount of manuscripts, even though it means you're going to get a ton of variants, it makes it much easier for us to reconstruct the original text of the New Testament and have great confidence that we have what the original was. Now, why is that? It's because of a sort of a process of triangulation here. Um, so, here's a, a simple example, right? Let's say that you had this sentence. In 2022, the congregants of Neighborhood Church prayed that people in Chico, California would be more loving to one another. Okay, let's say that, that you know, someone was writing a history of Neighborhood Church and that sentence was in our history. Okay, now let's say that, you know, the internet's gone and people are very interested in the history of Neighborhood Church. So, you know, this history begins to get copied and, and one copy is sent to Reading and another copy is 
sent to Sacramento, and another copy is sent to, you know, Los Angeles, right? And, and then as the years go by, the people in Los Angeles are copying from that copy, and the people in Reading are copying from that copy, and, and so forth. Well, yeah, you're gonna get mistakes that get made. But here's the thing, everyone's going to make different mistakes. That's why you have all of these different variants. And if you have, say, four different, you know, text families, right, like this text got sent up here, and then it was copied a bunch, and this text got sent here, and it was copied a bunch, and so these are different families, then if, if three of those textual families agree on a wording, and there's one that's different, then it makes it very easy for us to identify, oh, that one probably the goof because these other three are all aligned with one another and they're all in geographically different areas. So they all must have been working off of that original. That must be the original wording. And the same thing, right? This tradition might make a mistake here, but then the other three will agree. And so then we can say, ah, that's where that guy, you know, goofed up. And, and this is exactly what happened in the New Testament. There were three different major centers that began copying these texts. There was one in Antioch in Syria, there was one in Alexandria, there was one in, oh Lord, help me, where was the last one? I, I want to say Rome, but no, oh, a Ephesus, Asia Minor. Okay, that was the other third big one. I mean, Rome later on, but that was more in Latin, but in, in terms of Greek manuscripts. So when we're looking at the manuscript traditions, we can actually identify, oh, this one's coming from the, the Ephesian, you know, Asia Minor text family, because it's making all the errors that we know that sort of tradition made. And this one's coming from the Alexandrian one. And by this process of comparison, we can actually identify where those errors are. Okay. So what kinds of variants are there? I promise I'm going to go really quick. We're, you know, I'm, I'm almost done. Um, there's differences in word orders. There's omissions of words. There's differences in words. Skipping a line of text. Now here's the thing. Of all of those variants, 99% of them make no difference at all. It's super easy to see, oh, this scribe messed up because they, you know, this manuscript has John, you know, 714 and then it goes to John 720 because imagine, right, if you're like copying down from this manuscript, if you just accidentally skip a line, right? That's going to cause a problem. And we can be like, oh, he missed a line. Okay. That's obvious. So it's easy to identify as my point. Almost all of the variants, we can, we can say, we know that one's not part of the original by this process of text comparison. So less than one-fifth of one percent of the variants in the New Testament are both meaningful. They would actually change kind of what the text is saying and viable, meaning we're still trying to figure out what, which reading is the original reading. So there's a vanishingly small amount of the New Testament where there's still a debate about what was the original wording here. Now here's the next really cool thing. You can find all of these in your Bible, all right? They're in your footnotes. Maybe you don't read your footnotes too often, but, but every now and then you'll see in your Bible a thing and it'll say, some manuscript traditions read it this way, right? Have you ever noticed that? Anyone ever seen that in your Bible? Yes? Okay, cool. So here's the thing. The original text is in your Bible. It's just either up here or it's in the footnote. But it's in the book, you know, because we've put in all of the meaningful and viable ones. Now, 
Next question would be, what theological beliefs depend on textually subject passages? Well, no central Christian doctrine is affected by any of the textual variants. But there are some that are meaningful and viable. Two really interesting examples. One is Mark 9.29. So um, this, this, in the manuscript tradition, it is unclear if the original reading of Mark 9.29 said that this is an instance where the disciples were trying to cast demons out. They were unsuccessful. Jesus came. He was successful. They say to Jesus, hey, why couldn't we do it? And he says, oh, this kind only comes out by... And then we're not sure. Did it read only comes out by prayer? Or does it read only come out by prayer and fasting? We're still trying to figure out what was the original wording there. But you know what? Your Bible will say both. It'll have them both in there on Mark 9.29, either in the text or in the footnote. Now here's a fascinating one. This one's relatively new. So um, the book of Revelation, okay, um, uh, there, the, the most important manuscript that we have for translating the book of Revelation actually says that the number of the beast is 616. But um, uh, the vast majority, vast, vast majority of manuscripts read that it's 666. And so, you know, what textual critics have done is they've said, look, even though this one manuscript of Revelation has been really reliable and, and helpful and accurate in a lot of places, it seems to have made an error here because it disagrees with the whole rest of the tradition on the number. So we still think it's 666. This was just one place where this really good manuscript made an error. Well then, like 10 years ago, there was a new manuscript of Revelation found. And it is now the oldest surviving copy of Revelation that we have. And that one says that the number of the beast is 616. And um, so, you know, textual critics are, are still trying to figure this out. There's now a, a, an open debate of, you know, do we need to modify this? And uh, if it does, man, there's like a ton of Christian literature that's headed for the dumpster fire, you know, from the, from the Christian stores. So, so you know, it's, it's meaningful, right? Like it matters. What's the number of the beast? But, but it's not affecting any of the central Christian doctrines. It doesn't affect did Jesus die on the cross? Was he God? Did he rise again for our salvation? So here's, here's the big idea. Has the essence of the Christian faith been corrupted by the scribes? This is a great quote. Okay, so, um, I mean, you probably already read it, but I just got to tell a story. So in, in Bart Ehrman's book, Misquoting Jesus, right, where he's talking about all these errors that scribes have made through the years, the, the editors of the book in the appendix were interviewing him and they asked him, okay, you know, given, given all of the, you know, differences that have happened, like, what beliefs about Christianity do you think, you know, are, are, are false? Like, which beliefs should be changed and, and what did the, the text originally say? And Bart Ehrman, after the whole book, goes, well, no, it, the original text says about what we have today, you know, my point was just to talk about how scribes make all these mistakes, but, you know, we have 
we have reconstructed the original text. And the publisher was like, what? But, but I thought, you know, and then, and then Bart has this, this is in his book. Essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. And, um, and Dan Wallace concludes his work saying the New Testament text in all essentials and in the vast majority of particulars is absolutely certain. So can you have faith that we do have the text of the New Testament that is faithful to the original? Yes, we can. Have there been, are there a ton of variants in the manuscripts? Were there mistakes made throughout the years? Yes. But because we have so many different manuscripts, we can cross-reference that and check that. And so, you know, to bring this back to Jesus, right? God works through humans, including in the construction of his written word to us. That the Bible, as the written word of God, is very much a human work and a divine work, just as Jesus, the living word of God, is fully human and fully God. And, um, you know, and then when we think about what this is, it's just a record of what he's done to save us. And it's an invitation to us to come into relationship with him. And so the question for you and for each one of us is, will you accept what Jesus has done for you and follow him? Entering a covenant relationship with him. Um, and the terms of that covenant, if you say yes to Jesus, what does it look like to be in covenant relationship with him? You're going to find that in his word. So if Jesus is your Lord and Jesus has authority in your life, then the Bible should have authority in your life because it contains his covenant. So Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that you work through us as messy as we are. Lord, I thank you that it is, to, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing that you can work through us. And so, Lord, I thank you for your word that you have given us, this divine word that is trustworthy and has such a rich and beautiful history where we can see your working with us through the years. Thank you for showing us what you've done for us and helping us to remember the stories of your salvation. Thank you for inviting us into relationship with you. Lord, I pray that for all of us here at Neighborhood, that we would find your word to be what it is, an invitation into your love. Lord, let us never be afraid of this book. Even when we are far from you, Lord, would we always see this book as, a, as an invitation to come back into um, a, a relationship of life and love with you. Lord, would you bless us um, in Jesus' name. So with that being said, um, if you would like prayer, prayer, prayer folks, come forward, please. We'd love to pray with you. And um, thanks for letting me go long today. Uh, actually, way to go. I went 15 minutes over. So give yourself a, you know, a hand. And um, God bless you guys. Love you. Bye.